I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly. And I'm Matt Dancona. And this is The Two Mats for the week ending Friday, the 27th of October. A podcast that would never pay for a blue tick or even a gold tick. We've just had a fantastic conversation with James Ball, which is the second half. Our colleague uh, and uh, guru on social media disinformation, unpacking what's going on with the information war in the Middle East crisis. Yeah. Really fascinating. And more broadly. And more broadly. But the first half was was dedicated, devoted, especially to Rishi Sunak. One year on. My God. A a year of infamy. (laughs) Infamy, infamy. They've all got it in for me. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, well, I think we're both passionate on the subject, so I th- definitely think it's it's worth listening to, isn't it? I mean, I think you know it would have been wrong to allow the milestone to pass without paying yeah. our respects yeah. to our diminutive, glorious leader. <laughs> so, what should we call this episode? Um, Rishi Sunak. It got worse. It got even worse. <laughs> Who's worse, Rishi or Elon? Yes. Um, from bad to worse, Rishi, Rishi to yeah, Elon to Rishi. From bad, bad to, to worse. worse, like that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is the two mats episode nineteen. From Rishi to Elon, from bad to worse. Enjoy. Enjoy. So what are we going to talk about, Matt? I th- well, I think we can't avoid the fact that this week marked uh, one glorious year of Rishi Sunak in number 10. Amazing. A milestone. Amazing milestone these days. Uh, I mean, <laughs> actually, make 12 actually months as yes, to be fair, you know, compared to Liz Truss, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a lifetime. Yeah. Um, he celebrated the one-year anniversary with the, the suspension for six weeks of one of his MPs, Peter <laughs> Bone, which could lead to another by-election. Um, but before we sort of dig in, shall we have a taste of... The way it was when uh, a year were ago, more hopeful when things were you know on the sunlit uplands and all what that. Was, so, what was our wonderful leader saying this time 12 Matt, months ago? Producer Matt, can you the third Matt, can you give us a quick taste of what he was saying? The government I lead will not leave the next generation, your children and grandchildren, with a debt to settle that we were too weak to pay ourselves. I will unite our country not with words but with action i will work day in and day out to deliver for you this government will have integrity 
professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. That must be a record for the uses of the word I in a... Even by his own exacting standards. That was quite heavy on the old I. It was important of things to come. It was. What was not important to things to come was uh, getting the trust back of the British people because just checking the most recent polls, um, Ipsos has Labour on 20 points ahead. Yeah. And uh, GB News poll by People Polling has uh, Labour on 28 points ahead. So I'm not sure... He's quite sold the line yet. No. Um, no. I mean, okay. All right. Let's break the habit of a lifetime and be scrupulously fair. Yeah. What's he done? He's He and Jeremy Hunt have kind of ended the fiscal lunacy of the Liz Truss interregnum. And he's made some progress on inflation, on inflation though whether that's actually being felt by people yet, I don't really believe. Um, he was, he's been firm on Ukraine and Hamas. He did get the Windsor framework in sorted in February, although that was to sort out a problem created by Brexit that he... That he heartily endorsed. Heartily endorsed. So I don't think he deserves a huge amount of credit. Um, He just won the Uxbridge and Ryslip by-election in July. He's won cross-party support for his very personal niche obsession with phasing out smoking. And that's about it. Yeah. You've written a, a really long, epic essay. I, I, call, I don't call these articles. I call them essays because essay. it's, it's more than an article. And it's it's for this week's um, uh, New European or coming, coming up. up yeah. Actually, it's the next edition. Um, and it's, you know, the headline is Sunak laid bare. And you come to a conclusion which I completely concur with, which is that you can make a very strong case for saying that he's the worst of the lot. I do think he's the worst a lot. And I, I have thought so for a while, actually. Um, when he was campaigning in the first leadership contest, which he lost to Liz Truss, I was struck by how aggressively he went on culture wars, saying the only thing that was wrong with the Rwanda policy was it wasn't tough enough. And I thought, ah, this is interesting. Because, you know, he comes from a background where, you know, he's not, he's not a culture warrior by temperament. But he obviously thought, if I'm going to hold together... Boris Johnson's 2019 coalition. I need to be really, really nativist and populist. Yeah, and the calculation in his populism, and the the extent to which he's let Swala Braverman mm-hmm. say some truly horrendous things, um, is I think the, the the core to understanding his kind of Faustian pact in getting the top job. And while there are some people, if you like, the Davos classes who are quite lulled by his you know, his appearance of sobriety and common sense. I think that the way he's used that very dangerous politics, and God knows, you know, we've, we're in now in the middle of a international conflict in which those sorts of energies and passions um, are spilling out onto the streets of, of cities all over the world. You know, they are not to be, they're not things to toy with. You know, they're ve- it's very dangerous tinder just to, totally. to, to turn to it. And I, so I, th- I think very poorly of him on that. Yeah. I think that the promise he made in that clip, you know, about ethics, well, you know, he reappointed, one of the first things he did was reappoint Suella Braverman. Who'd just been sacked. Who'd just yeah. been sacked yeah. after his Home Secretary. And yeah. he did it over Nadim Zahawi's tax affairs. He was the chairman at the time. 
he got a, a report into the allegations of bullying against Dominic Raab, um, which was clearly, you know, grounds for resignation. And he sat on that for a while thinking, can, is there any way of keeping him, keeping Raab? Uh, there wasn't. So finally, Raab resigned in April. You know, instead of actually renovating standards in public life, he's he's allowed people like Raab to talk about activist civil servants, whatever yeah, that means. Yeah. And he's talked about the permanent state Sunak has, which mm. is really a version of the deep state MAGA yeah. talk. And I mean, we've we've talked about this a lot, but I think I think the thing that I I hold against him most is that he's not living in the present. You know, we've we've talked a lot on on this podcast over the weeks about. You know, the first question a politician needs to ask is, what time is it? What year is it? And I think he thinks it's about 1985 yeah. when he was five. Yeah. Um, you know, Nigel Lawson, the picture behind his desk at the Treasury. Yeah. You know, what does he learn from the pandemic? Nothing. Mm. The only thing he learns is that he hates handing out money. He, you know, he wants to wind down all the schemes. You know, he's the infrastructure he got developed during COVID has been more or less melted down or absorbed into other bodies so that our pandemic resilience is no greater than it was when COVID hit. Mm. And I think that he's a figure from the past. And I, to be honest with you, I think that for all the talk of renewal and reshuffles, they're now operating a, a damage limitation strategy. You think so? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the things they're floating, you know, they're, they're going very anti-green. They're floating things like stamp duty cuts and inheritance tax cuts. I mean, you know, pro motorist stuff. This is core Tory vote, and, the, and abolishing the the cap on the bankers' bonuses. Right, it's I mean, astonishing. This, this really. is you know. this is what you do when you have realised you cannot win. Yeah, but you don't want to go down to an absolute landslide defeat. So you're trying yeah. to shore up the Tory vote. Now, I'm not sure even those things will cut much ice because I think they're the kind of measures that might have worked in a little bit with traditional Tory voters in the 90s and certainly did vote in the 80s. I'm not sure that they cut much ice in no. the 2020s. I, I I mean, I find him quite a repellent character. Obviously, I've never met the guy. I'm, maybe he's a really nice person face to face. But as you said just a moment ago, the fact that he facilitates Suella Braverman's ongoing political career shows to me that he is a coward of the highest order on two fronts. One is that he is terrified of confronting her because what confronting her means about the future of the Conservative Party. But also on a personal level, I feel like he's terrified of confronting her. I just don't feel like he's a big enough person. right? Imagine if you came into, into politics in these circumstances where you know the entire nation is absolutely fed up of Tory messing about and shenanigans you're the fifth prime minister in seven years you're following on from the worst prime minister in british history liz truss who followed on from the second worst prime minister in british history boris johnson so there's nothing to lose right and yet and you put on your prada suit and your thin tie and you stand there with your hair immaculately quaffed and say, <laughs> I will bring back integrity to government and some nonsense like that. And there's, what I find appalling about him is his, actually, his lack of ambition. Yes. The lack of wherewithal to say, do you know what, folks? Fuck 
this. Fuck it. I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to do something yes, I mean, transformative because it's lost. So I'm going to do something. He's got a working majority of 60, yes. right? Which most prime ministers in history would kill for, yeah. right? He could do all sorts of things, even if it is in a very brief period. Um, it's interesting because I do have, and we've again, we've talked about this. I do have this great sense of an ending, an ending of a long era. And a, a terrific uh, recently published book, which I can't recommend highly enough, um, by Ben Riley Smith. Oh, yeah. He was uh, on the News Agents podcast. Right, to, right. To he's a, them, he's a political great, editor yeah, of the Daily yeah, Telegraph. Yeah, yeah. And he's written this book called The Right to Rule, which is about the 13 years of yeah. of, of, of Tory uh, prime ministers, five prime ministers. It's a real... I mean, not all political books are, you know, page turners. This really is. Yeah. And I, it will be a while before it's bettered it's a, a really excellent book so if listeners sort of want a, a feeling you know change in the air they want to get a sense of what's coming down the road with labor but also what, what did all that amount to you know yeah. 2010 suddenly david cameron comes in with the lib dems lots of modernization talk and now we're in 2023 and it's all about you know small boats and yeah. herding people onto barges and how did that happen this book really is excellent on that uh, do you know and, the, and there was a very good um episode of the news agents with Emily Maitlis and John Sopel talking to him I think John's thesis was it doesn't it didn't matter how good uh, Rishi Sunak was you know after 13 years of this brigade nobody is good enough to rescue the Tory party and it's just come to a natural conclusion in the in its current shape and form but I, I just don't buy into that thesis at all no, I, I think, think it, it acquits him too much and I think that you you have to look I mean you know, Gordon Brown came at the end of 13 yeah, years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were moments in those crucial coalition building days when it looked yeah. as if he might be able to stay on as prime minister. Yeah, and you'd look at Gordon Brown versus Rishi Sunak. No, you know, comparison. No, I mean, honestly, one is Different a boy league. scout. Different you know, one's a boy scout and the other's a grown man doing a, an Different amazing league. job. Different you know, league. An and, adult. I mean, I think the, the, the amazing thing about it is that these 13-year periods are really instructive. You know, New Labour only had Blair and Brown. Yeah. Uh, you go back to the fifty-one sixty-four uh, Tory government. There was Churchill, Eden, Macmillan, <laughs> yeah. Douglas Hume. But you know, they're all of them, including Douglas Hume, substantial figures. Yeah. Okay, now look at back at the look back in anger. You've got Cameron, yeah, May, mm. Johnson, <laughs> Truss, <laughs> Sunak. Your face. Yeah. Says it all. And each of them managing to outdo the predecessor in crapness. I mean, it is not glad confident morning again is it I, mean, I think it is i do think that this is the end of a of an era that's not just going back to 2010 but actually goes back to 1979 that the conservative has been a long conservative empire in which new labor was a sort of um you know it was part it was it was it bought into a lot of conservatism though adding a social justice element but now is the time for a change you know that's that long kind of 40 plus year period is over yeah and, and unfortunately i have to say i don't believe with the best will in the world that keir starmer is this the is guy that's this, going to deliver this is that this is the huge unanswered question because if i have a fear about it all it's that we do need a big change and if labor doesn't provide it then you get into the terrible terrain of of, of populism having an even greater appeal you yeah know, and if, the problem and maybe his biggest crime is that he's not testing starmer He's not pushing him. If you take the two conferences, it was such a doddle for Starmer to come in yes. and, and wipe Sunak's, you know, banal conference statements off the public's memory yes. and, and impose his own. You know, the, if you if you put it into football terms, what you would want is 
Manchester City and Liverpool battling each other and having to be relying on on great tests of strength and character. Sorry to all the Arsenal fans. You could have said I could have said Arsenal. I could have said Man. Well, no, I, I couldn't have said Man United at the moment. But anyway, you take the point. You want two great titans going yes. at each other and raising their game as they go. We've got Accrington Stanley versus you know I don't know Crawley and with the greatest will in the world, they're not world class teams. And you want some world-class characters to be able to raise the whole nation's boats with the tide. It's not It's not happening, and I can't see it happening for quite some time. It's true, and I, I do worry that um, Starmer is going to get into Downing Street. I, I, I've no doubt that he's capable of getting into Downing Street, and he will look like a plausible prime minister. Let's be fair, he does look like a plausible prime minister. But the things that are waiting in his in-tray, mm. I mean, it... It's a worse intro than Thatcher inherited in 1979. So the question is not so much can he win. I think he can win. Yeah, he deserves yeah, to win. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what does he do when he gets there? Yeah. And to that, I, I think one can honestly say I don't know yet. I, I, I hope I'm hopelessly wrong on this, by the way. I hope he comes in. I think he, as you say, I'm sure he will. I hope he comes in. I hope he has a good working majority. I hope he's got something to do with that majority. You know, I hope he's got the ideas behind the the tactical performance, which has been clever. You know, if you're who was it that said never interrupt your enemy while they're making mistakes? Well, allegedly Napoleon, although I think right. it probably wasn't. But anyway, the point being, you know, if the opposition is screwing up to that degree, yes. then keep your mouth shut and just yes. don't make any major howlers. I think the the opposition is screwing up to such a degree that you'd want more from Keir Starmer and Labour right now. At this point, you'd want more. The the conference was good, and they made some good noises around housing and education and so on and so forth. But you'd want more of a sense that there's a leader here in waiting. And you don't get that feeling from Well, I mean, what the country's going to need is, you know, Atlee-style reforms, you know, beverage-style reforms, big, big, big risks. Yeah. You know, the question... I have yet to sort of have answered satisfactorily just by observing, but also by people around Starmer is, is he ready to take a risk that might not come off? Yeah, right. Because Which I, is he, the, that's the definition of leadership. That right? is the definition of leadership. I mean, he's brilliant at reassuring. I mean, he, you know, credit where it's due. He has taken the anti-Semitic stain off Labour. He has got them in line. He has reassured the markets. He's done all the things that a, a reassurance strategist should do. But you, you can't govern, particularly you can't govern in 2024, just by reassuring people. The, yeah. the world is not in that sort of condition. People will need to understand that the big and painful changes are ahead uh, and they need to be. Yeah, yeah. It's and, hard to yeah. imagine those words in his mouth. We'll see. And, and, and also what the world looks like once we've gone through those changes. Absolutely. That's the important thing. Yes. You've got to know where you're going. I think he's kind of... Tried to articulate that. Well, I, the one thing I did like in the conference on that front was the decade of renewal. Yes, that was because a good what he phrase, was saying yeah. was basically, I, "Look, I need two terms." Yeah, and that's that's good thinking. And that's there was good. something Kennedy-esque about yes. the decade of challenge. You that's know. right. You know, this is going to be yeah. hard. This is our moonshot. Yes, but the, but but that's what that's the literal specific about what's missing is what what does Britain look like at the end of that decade of renewal? You know, we well, need the problem to have a good the problem is it is that they haven't actually named a moon to go to yet. exactly yeah that's my point it's you know like it's not, not really, clear yeah what the moon is and i don't think they know really but you need somebody when you think about blair coming in 
and the people he had oh, around. They, they had many. Alistair, you know, Philip Gould, all, you know, like yeah. real kind of heavyweight communicators. Angie Hunter, you know. Absolutely amazing communicators. And I don't, I, I've no idea who's writing this stuff for, for Keir Starmer, but I, I, I don't really think that they've got that level of communication expertise. Um, and it's going to become more and more important, I think, that they can sell the dream. Someone who's engaged in sort of getting them ready in terms of manifesto uh, yeah. preparation told me the other day that, that they've got a bunch of policies, but they don't have a narrative, yeah, which right. is exactly your point. Yeah. That they've, they've, got, they've got a list of things they want to do. Yeah. But what they don't have is a, is a thing to bind it together that they can then not just go onto the doorstep, because I don't think this is just about the election. In fact, I don't think it's really at all about the election, but afterwards and say, right, this is what we're going to do yeah. in the first year, first hundred days. Yeah, I want to know what, what is my role, right? I'm being as a citizen. But what is no, my absolutely. role as a citizen? In reshaping this country so that it's something better. What's the British dream? Not the American dream. What's the British dream for this epoch? Yes. I've got skills. You've got skills. Everyone's got skills. How, how can these skills be galvanised? All I hear from Keir Starmer is we've got massive problems and the state is going to step in and solve yes. these problems. A bit. Yeah, a, a bit. And it's going to be really painful. I'd, I, I want to know how I can help solve these problems as a citizen. You know, what is it I can do? I mean, one thing that he could do without spending a dime would be to say, look, Boris Johnson fell in 2022 because of an ethical crash, which the Tories then responded to by having an argument about tax cuts. OK, yeah, yeah. there are a whole load of things that could be done at marginal cost to radically improve trust in public standards in public life. You could do them in the first hundred days. Yeah. You could make a speech, you say, there's no point in me doing anything unless you guys trust not only me and not only the government, but the, the whole system. Yeah. And I understand why you don't. For example, yeah. just as a, for instance, the, the independent advisor to the prime minister on ministerial standards, Laurie Magnus, who's a very tough person, cannot initiate his own inquiries. They have to be um, triggered by the prime minister themselves. Yeah. And that's insanity. You know, obviously, to be independent, that advisor should be able to sleuth around Whitehall doing whatever they want. Yeah. Um, now, that doesn't cost a penny, but it's a significant change. It says, right, I'm now making my government totally and utterly transparent and Solori will be, you know, roaming around and God help anyone who fouls up. Yeah. Whereas at the moment... He has to go, if he's Prime Minister Starmer, he has to go to him and say, would you look into whoever it is? And if, you, if, the, if the Prime Minister is the villain, that's the equivalent of marching yes, into the police and, station and, and saying, I've and, just committed the crime. And also, I think that there should be some tightening of what the Prime Minister has to do, because uh, as we've seen in the past, um, the Prime Minister doesn't always follow the advice of the independent advisor. Yeah, yeah. Things like that, you know, um, there, it's been 20, it's more than 25 years since the Nolan Commission. And it's time for not only some actual change, but some, some, a sense of response to what people feel. Yeah. They just don't before, trust the system. Just before we go to a break, what's your favourite Rishi Sunak moment of the last 12 months? I think um, when he almost disappeared behind a lectern. Um, <laughs> I think it was a stop the boats, because they, they, as you know, the, 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 the mottos have changed. Over yeah, the, yeah. But it was a stop the boats one, and he came out with his physics revision notes. Yeah. And 
You thought, oh, he's kneeling. Is he, is he sorting out the <laughs> he's something? Kneeling. He's not. No, there he is in his little trousers, <laughs> right? You could barely see him. I mean, it is hilarious. Yeah, I One shouldn't I, mock, but no. you'd have to hard, hard uh, stone hard not to. Stone. I, I think the, the petrol pump fiasco takes yes, a that, lot to beat. But that was glorious. I think my single favourite moment was when he was helping out in the soup kitchen and he asked the homeless guy what business, line of business he was in. The guy just looked at him and said, mate, I'm homeless. It was like, <laughs> There's uh, no, oh, yes, right. I'm in the being on the pavement line yes. of business. <laughs> right, okay. Well, okay. thank you very much uh, for listening, folks. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We're going to come back in the second half with a really superb guest talking Absolutely. about disinformation, which Absolutely. will be which a great listen. very much on the pace at the moment. On the Media Podcast this week, we also have the new European's James Ball, but on other stories entirely, including the auction to buy the Telegraph Media Group. But will it all be derailed before a buyer's found? Uh, Also on the programme, 50 years old and commercial radios in rude health, according to the latest data. We unpack the findings. Plus, as TV stops commissioning new shows, what's it really like for the freelancers that do all the work? We speak to one director frustrated at the way they've been treated. That's the Media Podcast with me, Matt Deegan. There's a link in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So welcome back to The Two Mats. I'm really delighted to say we've got James Ball with us. Our uh, colleague. Our colleague, yes, a writer on many organs, but most notably, I would say, in the New European every week. Of course. Your wonderful deconstructed column uh, takes apart issues and explains stuff to to the world. So explain this to me. You, you're a great information, disinformation expert. Has has the, the dialogue on social media ever been worse than it is right now? 
I mean, I was about to call it a cesspit these days, but that would be an insult to cesspits, which actually carry out a useful societal function. Um, I mean, essentially, you have kind of got to see what happens if you put a clown, like a clown in charge of major infrastructure over the last year. It's a year this week that Elon took over. And Twitter wasn't some brilliantly managed, heavenly Elysium place beforehand, but... It could not have been worse if it was designed to. I mean, one thing that strikes me, I've I've been posting a bit on the disinformation and the really nasty polarisation side of it, and it is viciously unpleasant. And it's not Elon Musk's fault that people act like twats on the internet. Um, and Although it is his fault, presumably, James, that, that he laid off so many people who were meant to, you know, Check content moderation and yeah, I mean, I've I've been called a capo at least five times in the last three days, um, which is, you know, it's not a well known insult. I would encourage you to Google it because I don't want to get into it, no, but it's, it's about a, one of the worst things you can not, be called. Not nice. Uh, but you know, I posted about people ripping down posters and the deluge on that. These are these are pictures of hostages. hostages yeah, that, yes, that the hostages. Pro Palestinians are. Yes. Well, I, I would say it's not pro-Palestinian to rip down those posters. It's pro-terrorist, yes, pro-Hamas. Yes, 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 if you're yes. ripping down posters, I'm sorry. You know that that doesn't count for me as uh, supporting the and civilian the victims. In, this was the backlash. Was the in the there? Um, but but this sort of thing. That's the fact that Elon got rid of moderation, um, and community notes doesn't replace moderation. And this is also where their kind of nonsense theory that getting rid of reach and making abusive things not reach doesn't work because most of those things are audience of one and people discover them in the replies and their friends discover them in the replies and join in. And so their philosophy that you don't need to moderate totally misunderstands the nature of abuse and pylons. The bigger problem, and I actually wrote about this in uh, the New European recently, is the misinformation that goes around. And it's an immensely difficult story to report you know, I think the honest mistakes that most of the world's media made over the hospital show it's very difficult. You can't really treat either side as a reliable narrator. You've got all of that. But what Elon has done is changed blue tick to mean a verified media source, to mean you pay $8 a month. And not only might you still, to a casual user, look to have some credibility, but the algorithm will promote you very heavily. And also, you will get paid depending how many views you have. And there are no standards on who gets monetized and demonetized. Mm. So if you push too hard on YouTube, if you go full QAnon on YouTube, you'll get demonetized. So you might get 10 million views, but you won't get the ad revenue for it. That doesn't happen on Twitter. And so what accounts are doing completely cynically with no politics behind it is they're taking footage from video games, from Syria, from Russia and Ukraine showing something blowing up and uh, presenting it as breaking news or as something that's happened. In, or, or old in speeches by world leaders and then just putting yeah, funny... Often, often cutting out keywords yes. and sentences, doing that. And so it's not just a kind of what happens if you neglect it. Social media now is set up to amplify and encourage. Twitter is paying, well, X is paying money to people to push out grotesque misinformation about... A horrendous conflict in which thousands of civilians are dying and suffering, yeah. but also which could easily ignite the Middle East or the world. Yeah. 
there aren't words for quite how terrible what he's doing is. So what's the what's the right response to this though? I mean, so I, I, I bet one question that a lot of people are thinking as they hear you describe this is why do you engage with it anymore? It's a question I ask about the New European is why do we bother anymore? Because it's, I mean, it's almost immaterial to us as a business that we are present on Twitter. It makes no real difference to our business. And I kind of sit there thinking, what the hell are we doing here anymore? It's such a loser's place. But anyway. I th- I think I, I've taken a view over the year that it still has enough residual value. There's enough interesting people there. That kind of social media network, nothing else is tied to real time and nothing else is tied to current affairs. And a lot of the Twitter clones are actively saying, we're not trying to do that bit because that right. bit's hard. Right. And so until very recently, the value has been there. I'm also, I'm an advisor on a documentary about Elon Musk that's coming out in 2025. And social media is the bit I know about. And so I probably can't quit the field until I have to. (laughs) But But I, I have hit the point now where for the first time in the last few weeks, I've thought if I wasn't needing to cover this as a story, I think I would be off it now. Yeah, yeah. But Elon doesn't get that it doesn't work for publishers. Like, it wasn't a big driver of traffic for anyone beforehand. But people sort of liked it because it was how your peers might see a story and how they might look at it. And more and more people, even who are still there, are just on broadcast now. The value is dropping like hell. I think that's definitely true. Is there any sort of information yet, James, about how much of this is coming from outside the region is there russian intervention on social media are there other state actors coming in we don't really know yet and one of the difficulties is a lot of the research tools have been turned off Um, now twitter was always better than the other social networks for offering access to these to academic researchers and others Uh, elon's essentially set the cost to use the research api prohibitively expensively Um, You know, as if you were a global enterprise trying to get it for some mysterious reason. You know, it's been priced so high, no one could ever use it. But there were always little workarounds and tricks you could do that are technically against the terms of service, but could work. And he's very publicly threatened, of all places, the Anti-Defamation League. Um, But other places that were doing research on hate speech, on bots, on this kind of thing have had quiet warnings. And so there's a lot less quick identification than there used to be. People will be doing their usual tricks. You can sort of see quite a lot of the signs that Israel or Israel-affiliated hackers are possibly attacking some major pro-Palestinian accounts. I'm sure there's some of that going the other way. It would be odd if Russia decided to sit this one out, although they're sort of riding both horses in this one. And so... You can sort of get to this level of chaos. Once you start saying to trolls, we'll give you thousands of dollars if you push out misinformation, uh, which is what Elon's saying. You know, if you advertise on Twitter, your money is going to fund Israel-Palestine disinformation. Like, that is the core message. That's the content. <laughs> you know, that, that, That's there the is no escaping that. Yes. But also, Twitter directly now hands revenue to that. Twitter's only money comes from the $8 a month, which comes nowhere near covering their cost. So if you are giving Twitter money, you are fueling the blue tick misinformation. You know, consider your brand next to it because someone will overlay it with it at some point. What do you reckon is his his long-term plan is for Twitter then in terms of making it a business? I, I mean, I know he's 
you know, inordinately wealthy, but I presume he does want to make it profitable at some point. I mean, the, the nature of modern wealth is you can't ever turn it into cash. And he needs cash at the moment because Twitter's burning it. And if he starts pulling it out of Tesla too quickly, Tesla will deflate. Yes. It doesn't mean that Tesla couldn't stay big, but it's a very delicate confidence game to keep it big. And so he can't just put five billion a year into Twitter. So no, he needs Twitter to start yeah. improving. How's he? How, what's his plan, do you think? I mean, the, the way he seems to be trying to do it is that the beatings will continue until morale improves. He takes more <laughs> and more. Which is very much my approach as a new European, <laughs> as you both know. Yes. As well we know. <laughs> we've Tried we've, and tested. We've all That's got the press day briefs. I only yes. work with people who actually enjoy that shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The new European, the masochists newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we God. beat you till you cheer up. <laughs> and, and by the way, that goes for subscribers too. So yeah, so be, warned, be warned, folks. Yeah. He means it. <laughs> um, you will enjoy this newspaper. But, anyway, but essentially, you know, people got very confused by it because he doesn't want anyone to leave Twitter. And so, to, as in, not just quit it, as in, I used Twitter when, do you remember RSS feeds where you could just have yes. a little feed yeah, from your yeah. news outlets and it was there? When that died, I used Twitter at first like an RSS feed, but then you could chat to people about it, and then it kind of turned into a social network for me. I always use it to find stuff to read. You know, I think I'm not the only person. I've started going back to newspaper online front pages again. Yeah, Um, yeah. But even papers I pay subscription for, I would get almost everything through Twitter. Twitter had a newsletter service where you could make and sell newsletters on it, he canned that, but then banned Substack links. Yes. It's like, well, you don't want to offer the product yourself and you don't want other people to go. So he's trying to sort of degrade the service in the hope that you'll pay him for it, in the hope that you'll trust him that if you pay him for it, it'll be good. Yeah. Uh, which has never worked. That That well, is I mean, the plan. There's a source of analogy with, with popular mainstream newspapers in certainly here, but across the world, really, when they degraded the quality of the content and uh, the user experience on their own websites and then realised that the ad dollars, the ad pounds weren't there anymore. So thought, oh, subscription's the way to go. But guess what? By that time, everyone was thoroughly convinced that the product was shit. Yes. And weren't about to start paying you to make it better. So, you know, I, I kind of feel like... That, as you suggest, that is a route to... to... He, he doesn't understand it well enough yeah. to make choices. It's just like things of, okay, he's paying something out to creators now, but in a very inconsistent way. But most people who would run a social network would understand the users that have followers and get engagement are your product. Yes. You need to court them, win them over, keep them. You don't need to constantly troll them. And essentially, Elon came in absolutely hating all the blue ticks because he didn't feel like part of the club. And so he took on Twitter's power user base, sort of came in going, screw you all, I hate you all, you know, I'm going to build a better thing. Uh, And then all the sort of people who had no followers and got no engagement got blue ticks and then realised that actually they still get piss-all content because it's not the blue tick on the old system that got you viral. It was doing good tweets. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, they still don't do good tweets. That's right. You know, I, I sort of find most of my tweets don't get as much engagement as they used to because there's not as many people. But, you know, I'm tickless. I haven't paid. I don't have a hidden one or anything like that. My overall numbers are about the same as they ever were. 
you know, my following counts about the same as it ever was. Mine too, yeah. You know, it, it turns out my particular brand of bad tweets get enough people wanting to shout at me still that yeah. exactly. you know, the tick, it wasn't the tick that got the you've numbers. You've always been reliable in that regard. <laughs> no, 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 no. So it's why you, it's why you pay me at the <laughs> exactly, New European. Exactly, exactly. Just on the sort of basics of, you know, social media is a sort which it was a, a, originally a, a source of citizen journalism. Presumably there's a huge problem in Gaza, which is that people aren't going to be able to recharge their phones or indeed get internet access. I mean, there's going to be a very a big, just in terms of finding out what's going on, it's going to get harder and harder, I assume. I mean, yes, although you have to think this is not the first rodeo of anyone on the Gaza Strip and journalists no. there are very used to operating in incredibly difficult circumstance, including without power, People often generators and, and so forth, uh, yeah, yeah. or small solar panel kits yep. and things like that. And you know, those work for phones. There's only so much you can do if the comms infrastructure isn't there. But again, sometimes you can have a booster so you can get to a tower on the other side. Right. So sort of, there's there's lots of tricks that journalists there know. I think compared to the difficulties of operating with the huge degree of fear and lack of safety yeah. that they have. Yeah. yeah. I think the infrastructure is probably one of the smaller problems smaller there. Problem. Um, but only because this isn't unexpected for them. You know, it's easy yes. to think because of the scale of what's happening, it's new. How does it compare with Ukraine? Essentially, the infrastructure in Ukraine is a lot better. Uh, and also, there is much more international willingness to supplant it and to come in and to support it. Um, it's not like Israel is going to let people in to help the communications infrastructure when they're barely letting food and water in. Yeah. Um, and so as a reporting sort of situation, it's much less safe. You know, reporters on the front line in Ukraine obviously were taking significant risks, although often Ukraine had some quite experienced forces who would make sure they weren't at the worst of the front line kind of thing. And if you were reporting from Kiev or other places, there were places to go when the airstrike sirens went. You know, Gaza does not have an extensive underground network like Kiev did. You know, the tunnels aren't there, the safety isn't there for the people reporting it. So, you know, you, I mean, I, I saw footage just today of the, the Gaza bureau chief of Al Jazeera lost his family who did live yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, the very small number of Western reporters who are there don't have their families there, but they will have friends, they will have all sorts of other people and they'll be trying to keep themselves alive and there's not really that safety there. So We no. first met we first met six years ago when we both had books on post truth about. And I, I wonder if you go back to twenty seventeen, did you think it would be like this now? Or better or worse or <laughs> did you have any sense of where we'd be? So I, I look back at that and think, Oh gosh, I thought it was bad then. Exactly. <laughs> um, it feels innocent now, doesn't I, it? Yeah, I I feel like we didn't save the day, Matt. <laughs> I, I, I know I didn't save the day. I, I uh, think it's our fault. <laughs> I think I think I was too I, I think I was too optimistic, sadly. Um Yeah. I mean part of part of what I did in the QAnon book, um the yeah. other pandemic, which is my new one. Recommended readers is um slightly recant on I think you know, speaking of mine, I, I actually reread it not all that long ago. I think I had a good diagnosis of the problem and was completely naive as to how easy it would be to fix. I've sort of almost thrown out everything that I had as a solution there. Um, and I think part of it is trust comes from how connected people feel to society 
and that isn't just about how they feel about the media. Yeah. It's is society working for them. Yes. And we've had an awful six years. You know, we've had a pandemic, we've had got financial crises, we've got economic crises, we've got a brutal cost of living crisis. Yes. People are paying more tax than they ever have for worse services than they've had in living memory. And people look at that disconnect and want an explanation and populism and conspiracy and division is always going to fill that. And of course, there's some dodginess in there, there's some fraud in there, but most of it is just the world sucks right now. Mm. Yes. And also we've got incompetence in charge of this particular country. Quick yeah. question before we finish. Do you think X, Twitter, do you think it'll still be around in three, five years' time? I think it will be around, but I don't think Elon will own it. Okay. I think, it will, I, think, I think it's heading for bankruptcy. And who would pick up the pieces? A major... News Corp, perhaps, to run it responsibly, perhaps? Um, I wonder. It Imagine will... if the New York Times bought it and just said, you know, here's, yeah. here's the, the terms of engagement. Give us back our goal. I mean, your, yeah, yeah, your yeah. tricky thing there is, I think you could probably, depending how much it's from the ashes, yeah. you know, even if you really trash it, it's probably still worth $5 billion. Uh-huh. Okay. And you need someone to put the money in behind that, and you need someone to put in enough money to invest to rebuild it. Yeah. Okay. Could you get VC backing a NYT coalition, or do they dislike each other too much? Yeah. Possibly. Interesting. But yeah, no, interesting. Maybe you should buy it. Well, we need a few more subscribers, folks. If we're <laughs> start acquiring Twitter, only but a few anyway, within range. Do your little thing and subscribe to the new. James, thank you so much for thank coming you in. Very much. I hope you'll come in again on a regular basis. Pulitzer Prize winner, Jay. Pulitzer I always love. <laughs> So, so jealous, tongue, of, it? jealous of very few people, but I'd love, I'd love to be able to say Pulitzer Prize winner. But anyway, it, it is quite nice. It's it? very good, nice. Yeah. Good. Thank you, James. Read Thank James every much. week in the New European. Read Matt Dancona every week in the New European. And subscribe. In that order. In that order. <laughs> So thank you very much, James Ball. Hope you will come on again. Um, Matt, uh, fantastic episode. I really enjoyed all of that. You really uh, enjoyed what it. What didn't we have time to talk about? Well, I suppose we didn't talk about um, Keir Starmer having trouble with um, his own Muslim backbenchers mm. and councillors over the war. And I think that story is going to grow. Yes. Um, and he is wavering a bit. Um, but it's 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 an, it's a... Serious problem for him yeah. because I think this this war is going to go on. Um, I think it's going to be. I'm afraid to say. I think it's going to be pretty horrible. And you know, Starmer nailed his colours to the Israeli mask very quickly, and I think felt that was right. But also felt that he couldn't have any clear blue water between himself and Sunak. Yes, the the, the centre of gravity in the Labour Party is very different to the centre yeah, of yeah. gravity in the Tory Party on on the Middle East. Yes, so absolutely. This is not going to go away. Yeah. I had uh, a great couple of days off at the beginning of the week, and I went to Brighton, oh, where my son's at uni, and we stayed at the Grand. The historic hotel. It was, and, and it's lovely, I have to say. They've really, really done a great job on it. But it, it's, it, been, it's been refurbished. It's been refurbished, and it was a really, really pleasant treat. Um, but, you know, I went with my nine-year-old son, my 16-year-old daughter, and my 18-year-old, who's at, Sussex Uni and it is remarkable I mean one was talking about the history of the Grand Hotel and the bombing and and how much of of my early political experience that opens up and you, but I did think you know we sit here moaning about things quite rightly I think about the state of the country and that but at least we're not being bombed by terrorists yes. on our own land you know so you can make a case for saying that 
in some ways that there's been a lot of progress since yes. since those days, you know, and uh, and that magnificent hotel is a, a kind of analogy for for the structural progress we've made. Although maybe it's still full of. Is it, is it, it's, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting hearing how often the Good Friday Agreement is being cited um, yeah. all over the world as how things can resolve themselves. Yeah. Although I fear. You know, we're a long way in the Middle East from yeah. the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, but but, yeah, but it yeah. does show it does show that things that are intractable apparently yeah. can cease to be intractable. Yeah, let's hope so. Um, anything else? We well, the, uh, just one other thing, which is um, a film I saw during London Film Festival, which uh, is now on Apple and, and in some cinemas, uh, The Pigeon Tunnel, which ah. is a, a movie documentary about the late John Le Carre. Fantastic. Uh, made by... Errol Morris, who I think with Ken Burns is, is probably, you know, the, the the other great documentarian alive in the world. Mm. And it's a fantastic movie because it's a Errol Morris is not a, a back you know, not backward at coming forward. And he has taken on some great figures in the past, did a brilliant film on Rumsfeld. Um and he jousts with Le Carre, who loves it, because of course, you know, Le Carre is a former spy himself and loves the the, the the dance and the ritual of the interrogation and the right. interview and it's just a beautifully made piece really? of cinema i can't recommend it highly what's enough. it called again the pigeon tunnel the pigeon tunnel uh, which it's is on a apple re- tv is it? yeah it's on apple tv and and in some cinemas but mm. it's it's really worth a couple of hours of your time it's less than stuff well i'll look forward to watching no that. definitely worth watching and of course um bill kenwright oh yes died yeah, yeah, um, sad. the everton chairman and owner for a long time and of course great huge figure in theater impresario yes. and they dimmed the lights on broadway on thursday night did they yeah uh, and also on on in the west end in london so a big loss uh, i only ever met him once he was a great scouser um tim walker who did our does our Mandrake column? Oh yes, I know Tim. Um, had a play on, um, and Bill Kenwright's a mate of his, or was sadly, you know, now he's passed, was a mate of his, and it was at the time when uh, Everton, and my, all my family are Evertonians, and I'm a Liverpudlian, so I'm really the black uh, right, sheep. Right. And anyway, so I went up to introduce myself to Bill, Bill Kenwright, <laughs> and it was at the time when he was having trouble with they were in the relegation zone. And he was tussling with this Russian who owned a big chunk of it. And it was all very awkward. Tim introduced me very kindly. And I said to him, so Bill, how's it going? I've never met him. And he just looked me in the eyes and said, fucking shite. <laughs> Which I thought, okay, that's something. And it's hard to take a conversation on from that. You know, there's a, there's a Matt Kelly's meeting with Mogul's book, Christmas book in this, because you're, you're, I saved Rupert Murdoch's life yeah. the other day, and now yeah. that, you I did, know. And I depressed Bill Kenwright. I mean, it's, it's, it writes itself. It's fantastic. It really but anyway, Bill Kenwright, rest one of the peace. greats. Rest in peace, mate. I hope it's blue wherever you are. So thank you very much indeed, uh, folks, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, as a reminder, you can get a fantastic subscriptions offer when you sign up to The New European. Uh, you get a free copy of James O'Brien's wonderful new book, How They Broke Britain, and James has signed those copies. I have to say there's only a few copies left now, so steam in while they're well, available. While well, supplies last. They are at www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S. Thank you very much, as always, to our wonderful production team, Maya, Ollie, and the third Matt at Rethink Audio. And for now, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.